The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 381 for Monday, February 13th, 2012. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions. You send in your tips. We try to answer your questions. We do our darndest. We try to share some tips of our own. Sometimes we talk about stuff that we've seen. Sometimes we talk about stuff that you've seen. Sometimes we do that and call it cool stuff found. All together, we hear, we are here to learn something new about the Mac and Apple products. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I haven't flubbed anything for a while, have I? Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Broad. Well, no, the reason I got confused, I, I, have, I have a tiny, well, I'm not the one that's confused, but I'll tell you why I, why I flubbed that, because as you know, I just got started with, uh, with Flickr, yeah. and oddly enough, and I just took a photo today, and they have this wonderful geocoding sure. uh, ability, where if you include it, which I, I am with, with some of my photos, like, sure. like on the iPhone, you, you can do that. Right. And I just took one this afternoon, and it was clearly at a beach in Fairfield. And Flickr identifies it as Grover Hill Bridgeport. Um, interesting. Uh, I mean, Bridgeport is is the city next to Fairfield, right? But uh, I, I, well, I, I sent in a support request. We'll see because I don't know why their database insists that it's in Bridgeport. Again, it's close by, but but the GPS when it comes up on the map, it clearly lists the beach that I identified. You know, it says Jennings Beach, and then it shows it right there. It's clearly in Fairfield. So I don't know. I don't know why they why they're uh, confusing that. Sometimes it says Fairfield. Sometimes it says Bridgeport. Uh, I don't know what database they're using. So if they can get confused, I can get confused. But on to the show. Well, that's a good. That's a perfect little topic to start with, right? I mean, it's uh, it's an interesting thing the way all this geocoding works. I know we subscribe to a uh, GeoIP based database for. Uh, for Backbeat Media so that we can do geo-targeting with our advertising and people want to do that or whatever. And uh, and for the most part, people just want to do country targeting and uh, and every now and then down to DMA, which is pretty, pretty well done. But um, DMA being uh, direct, no, it's, uh, what does DMA mean? Direct Marketing Association? Mm, no, it no. means um, it's... Uh, a designated market area. So you'll have like a, a Chicago DMA and a New York DMA and a Boston DMA and that, that kind of thing. So, and sometimes they'll do that, but rarely do people actually want to target zip code, but we can look it up, you know, and, and by having access to this database, we, we can, we can look it up and regularly it, it puts my IP elsewhere. <clears throat> Excuse me, but that's, that's very different from, you know, doing a, a, GPS based location, which is what your phone is doing. And you'd think that that would be more accurate, but I guess if their map is wrong, right. I mean, if their map says your coordinates, even if your phone gets the coordinates, right, but their whatever their map source is, is wrong. Then they're in the same boat. We are with the, you know, with the IP stuff, it'll say I'm in the town over, even though I'm, I'm right here. So it's all about your data, how accurate your database is. And I guess flickers isn't, isn't all that accurate. Or not perfectly accurate. 
We demand perfection from our service providers here. Actually, you know, I'm looking here. So it's not, I thought it was, no, it's, it's a data copyright 2010 nav tech, which I guess is one company that sells this data. It's a big so maybe one, it's yeah. a bug in their database or a bug in uh, Flickr's. Well, I sent another support request. We'll find out. They've acknowledged receipt of my request. Isn't nav tech, wasn't Google using nav tech for a while? I mean, I think they do their own data now, but, um, but uh, yeah, nav tech is certainly one of the big ones. N-A-V-T-E-Q, right? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Anyway, it's probably time to answer at least the first question in our, in our little queue here. So let's go to, uh, Oh no, I'm doing this wrong. Hitting all the wrong buttons, John. It's going to be one of those shows folks. Uh, but it based on the uh, pre-show that we had, it's going to be, a, uh, it's going to be fun. So, uh, we ran an article on TMO on uh, sometime last week uh, about how Apple had released a firmware update for 2010 IMAX that allows internet recovery. And someone commented uh, and, and their question was, was something I thought would be great to discuss here, John. The question was if the OS is, is messed up to the point where you need to recover, doesn't that usually mean you also don't have access to the internet? And, and so the the conversation here that I want to I want to have, uh, and it'll either I was going to say briefly, but it'll either be brief or it won't, uh, is twofold. Number one, what is internet recovery versus the recovery partition in line? Because these are there these are two different things. And then number two, why what Jack asked uh, is not necessarily is, is based on a false assumption. So, so let's talk about Jack's question first, and then we'll talk about the nuances and the differences between these two recovery methods. So the reason that internet recovery uh, in a general sense will work is that it does not rely on your operating system to do it when, when you, so, so lion has two different things. So I guess we're going to blend the answers. It has internet recovery and then it has the recovery partition. So, the recovery partition is actually created when you install Lion and it's put on your hard drive, but separate from the partition where you install all of your actual operating system. So even if your operating system is like totally foobar, as long as you can boot from the drive and get to the recovery partition, which is done by holding down, depending on the Mac, it's either R or command R, but command R will definitely get you there. Then from there, you can rerun the installer and it's its own operating system. So even if you're pulling data down off the internet, which you will be, if you reinstall, you're fine because as long, as long as you've got an active internet connection in your location, either your house or your office or wherever you are, it's going to be able to do this. So, so that part's actually pretty cool. Anything we should add here, John, before I jump into the difference between internet recovery and recovery partition? Uh, no, you're right. Command R. I, I just found the article about it. So, okay. so and we'll link to this article. It's, it's useful. Yep. Some of the uh, facets of, of this new feature. Yeah. So, so the thing is though, there's also internet recovery, which is limited to only Macs that can support it. And now that's been expanded downward to the 2010 iMacs. And what internet recovery lets you do is uh, it allows you to. Um, this is weird. I'm realizing that my, uh, I am not synced with my, the latest version of my, uh, of, of my notes here, which is interesting, but that's okay. Uh, internet recovery allows you to put a brand new hard drive in 
that has never had anything installed on it. And from the, from the firmware of the computer connect to the internet, download lion and reinstall, which, and that's pretty cool to be able to do that from, from nothing and, and strictly from the internet. And, and so then Jack's follow-up question is why isn't this available on all Macs? Why is it only down to 2010 iMacs? And my guess is that the EFI uh, needs to be big enough to be able to do this. And, and perhaps older Macs don't have an EFI large enough that like the, the firmware is, it can't be made large enough to do that. That, that would be my guess. Any thoughts about this, John? You know, one thing I noticed, this is something that I learned when I was uh, fiddling with, uh, with an SSD and, yep. uh, and I didn't realize this. So here, here's a tip for, for everyone. If, if you are going to be, Putting, uh, doing a backup, especially a full backup with Carbon Copy Clone or another another product to back up your hard drive. I found this out because what I did is I backed up my rotational hard drive to an SSD, and then I put it in to, you know, back into my MacBook Pro, and I'm like, oh, everything's exactly the same except for one thing, and I don't know why this is, but when I went to iCloud, and then I went to find my Mac, find my Mac for whatever bizarre reason has a dependence in that if the recovery partition is not there, find my Mac is not available. Wow. And it came up with some sort of error. It said like, you know, recovery partition, it's not there. So you don't get this feature. It's like, why? <laughs> huh? And it's I don't tricky. know why I'm, it, it, so what's the path if you've got Lion installed, like in that situation, how did you add the recovery partition? Well, I didn't, I just ran that SSD without a recovery partition. Okay. Okay. And then when I went back and then, yeah, when I was done with, with, uh, with that drive, then I did a full copy from that one back to the original drive. And of course that one had, uh, you know, since I had installed lion on it. Um, right. Yeah. So I basically just wiped out all the, uh, all the data, but something to keep in mind, if you are going to copy a lion hard drive, make sure that you copy over that partition. If, if you don't want to lose some functionality. Yeah, that's good. Is there, is there a way to rebuild? And I'm asked, I don't know the answer to this. Uh, it is, is there an easy way to rebuild that recovery partition if it doesn't exist? I think like anything, I, I think you would have to on the destination hard drive, create two partitions and use your, your tool of choice that they can see that partition and copy it over. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's very it, similar. How's it? I mean, the partition doesn't exist anywhere. It's like built doing, um, Oh no, it's there. You just, it, it, it may be hard to see. Right. But some tools can see it. Like, no, no, no. What I'm saying is if, if you somehow, if all you do is copy your, your, your main boot partition from one right. drive to another, how do you then add a recovery partition to that hard drive without having access to an existing recovery partition somewhere else? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 well, don't think, right. I don't think there's a way to do that other than, I, I guess if you reinstall Lion, then I guess that yeah that install a recovery partition for you. It sets the size a little because I don't think it takes up a lot of space. It's it's pretty small. Yeah, I'm looking at a couple of articles here about this, and it's it, you're you're right that um yeah that's interesting. I wonder if the Lion recovery disk assistant would add that. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. We got to, we got to research this more. So we'll have an answer for this in the next show because, uh, because that's good stuff. 
Oh, yeah, you're right. Look at that. Lion Recovery Disk Assistant lets you create Lion Recovery on an external drive that has all the same capabilities it built. Huh. Yeah. I didn't even know about that. Yeah. So that might be Look the way to you. do it. Nice. Thanks. Yeah, I stumbled onto that. But we'll do some more focused research when we're not in the middle of the show. Um, and we'll report back next week. So, so there you go. So the differences between recovery partition is that lives on your hard drive, whereas internet recovery is burned into essentially the motherboard of your computer. And, uh, and if that, if your computer supports it, then you're in great shape. Even if you lose your hard drive, because you can, well, you still want a backup because you're going to want your data back. But, uh, but as far as reinstalling the OS, you can just do that right from, uh, right from, you know, a, an internet connected computer that has no data on the hard drive whatsoever, which is pretty cool. All right. Moving on to Andy. Andy has a, uh, well, here we go. Hey guys, Andy Dolph calling from UNH. Um, I am having weird stuff with iOS devices singing both my iPad and my iPhone, uh, which are both on the current version of iOS 5. It's an iPhone 4S and an original iPad, if that matters. Uh, so when I connect them to my Mac via USB to dock connector cable, as I always have, they sync fine. But the over-the-air syncing, I have not had great luck, or Wi-Fi syncing, I've not had great luck with. I have seen it happen a couple of times. But in general, um, when I plug my iPhone into its power brick, which is plugged into the wall, and it's charging, uh, and it is on the same Wi-Fi network as my Mac, uh, it doesn't sync. And if I go into the options for wireless syncing, all I see is a menu that basically says, yeah, when this is on the same Wi-Fi network with your Mac, it can sync wirelessly. And I look at that and shake my fist and say, but it is on the same Wi-Fi network as my Mac. Uh, in fact, it's even through a Wi-Fi network generated by an Apple Airport Extreme um, which otherwise seems to work fine. So, uh, you know, I can get data and so forth. Any suggestions for why this might be the case? Because it would be awful nice to have it just sync when I plug it in. But mm, so far, no dice. This is where you cut me off. Awesome. Okay. I think I've got the answer for you, Andy. Uh, I, I ran into this myself, it, especially for people that, and which, which is most of us people that had iOS devices before iOS five and before all of this, uh, wireless syncing, uh, there is a setting in iTunes. So the one that you talk about, Andy, where you, um, where you set, uh, that it's going to sync is fine, but two, two other things need to be set. Uh, number one, Go into iTunes, go into your devices just on the left and click on your iPhone or your iPad. And on that first summary screen that appears where you get to pick whether it backs up to iCloud or backs up to this computer, and then you set all these options. The second one is the one that you talked about. Sync this 
phone or iPad over Wi-Fi. And that's going to be checked. But here's the magic that allows it to happen automatically when it's applied, when power is applied. And that is the first one in under options, which is open iTunes when this iPhone or iPad is connected. Completely unintuitive, but without that being checked, your computer is not actively looking for that device to be connected and it is not going to automatically sync. So um, there, there is no way to tell it to sync automatically with power without checking the open iTunes when this iPad is connected box. Weird, crazy, John, but, uh, but that is the magic answer unless you go into preferences. So iTunes preferences and then go all the way out to devices, which is the last second to last one. And make sure the prevent iPods, iPhones, and iPads from syncing automatically box is not checked because that too will obviously impact its ability to do that. Crazy stuff. Do you have yours doing Wi-Fi syncing, John? You know, I think there's another facet to this and I'm looking right now. So I, I think I understand his problem here. So yep. if you look on the iDevice, so right now right. I have my iPhone and I'm in settings general and there's an explicit selection here iTunes Wi-Fi sync. Right? Yes. And and I I think I understand his confusion because what it says on the screen, it says automatically sync with iTunes on your computer when your iPhone is plugged into power and connected to Wi-Fi. Right. And it sounds like it's not. Now, also on the screen is a button that if you press, it will sync now. So And that will work whether or not you have the checkbox in iTunes that says open when it, when connected. Yeah. Okay, so I think that's his issue. Is 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 that box? Yeah, I'm I'm ninety nine percent certain, checked. Andy. Yeah. Okay, and then of course the other oddness is that the uh, if you're on iCloud, it will sync to iCloud if you plug it into power. It will back up to iCloud or backup. Yes, yeah. which is is yeah, which is different, but it's also something that the device has to be plugged in and has to be connected to Wi-Fi right. in order to initiate that operation. Right. Now, one one other thing while we're on this, uh, and then we'll move on to Keith's question because it's related. Uh, Once you switch your backup from uh, the computer to iCloud, your iOS device no longer backs up to your computer regularly. Now, this can be a problem, especially if you've gone into your iOS device into uh, like uh, the iCloud usage. And we've talked about this previously where you can actually set. um, I think you go into. you can go, you go into settings, iCloud at the bottom storage and backup. And then I think it's manage storage. And, uh, and then you click on your device in backups and you can decide which programs data you don't want to backup. So you can opt certain things out. Well, the problem is if you opt it out, it's not backed up anywhere because your iPhone or iPad isn't backing up to your computer anymore, but you can force it to, by simply going in in iTunes and choose and right click on the device in the little uh, menu where your library and all that is over there on the left and choose backup. That will make it back up locally as opposed to uh, up to iCloud. So you can force it to ba- make a local backup, which is a handy thing to remember to do. Is that way you've got it just in case. Right. Good. Right. Okay. Keith time. Oh, and you know what that means? I do. I'm, I'm going to take your baton away, Dave. Take the baton. Run with it. <laughs> and here we go. Keith writes, hi, John and Dave. 
I'm glad he put me first. I have an iPhone 4S that syncs to a Mac Mini in my house. However, when I access either of my two other Macs on the local network and launch iTunes, my phone appears in that corresponding iTunes window and tries to sync to that Mac. I'm thinking that it might be related to the fact that my account names and short usernames are the same on all three machines. But I was hoping you could confirm before I try to change them. Also, I've never had to change an account name or short username, and I really don't want to mess it up. Additionally, toggling the sync with this iPhone over Wi-Fi button in iTunes changes the setting across all the machines, not just the one the iPhone is syncing to, no matter what machine toggles the button. I've also tried permanently deleting any backups that inadvertently get made on any other machine, but it doesn't seem to help either. This is extremely frustrating because I love Wi-Fi syncing, but I hate having to turn my phone into airplane mode before launching iTunes on any other machine. Thanks in advance for any help you can give. Dave. Yes. Oh, me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we'll, like we'll, we'll, we'll get the cadence going here. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. So I'm actually, I have this problem too, because, and I think he's right. I never thought about this before, but I bet it is that I have the same short username on, on both and or on, you know, on multiple machines and that's how it's getting confused. But, uh, but regardless, I don't want to change mine either. And I'm not going to, um, He's right. When you set that box that we talked about, that sync over Wi-Fi, that's actually, even though you, you make that setting in iTunes, the setting is stored on the device. So uh, it will try and do that no matter what iTunes it connects to. But as we mentioned in the last answer, that little box in iTunes preferences, so iTunes preferences devices, you can check the prevent any iPods or iPads from syncing to this computer box and that will do it. It's sort of a baby with the bathwater approach. Hopefully you don't have any, you don't have anything that you would want to sync with that machine versus your other machine. But, um, but that should do it. I think, I think I hope me too. All right, good. Andrew is next. And Andrew asks, I have a bunch of files to back up to DVD-R, 97.19 gigabytes, in fact. Do you guys know of an app or an Apple script, maybe, to tell me what will fit instead of doing it all myself? Forklift used to work really well for this, but in the second version, they changed how they do file sizes, and it doesn't anymore. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Okay, uh, so yeah, he wants to just span data across multiple DVDs, and he doesn't want to have to think about how do I fit this much on this one? And then this much on that one. And he just wants the software to do it. And toast will do that toast from Roxio, which is now owned by Corel uh, toast titanium for the Mac has this feature in it. In fact, it's sort of an automatic thing. You build a disc that's way larger than a disc could actually be. And when you hit burn, it'll just start spanning discs. And uh, from what I've seen, it works really, really well. I, I did this with some, some stuff actually a number of years ago and it worked great, but, but I confirmed the current version has that too. They also have audio spanning. So if you have more songs than would fit on an audio CD and you want to burn it, it'll do the same kind of thing and it'll just keep chunking them up so that you've got a string of CDs that have all the songs on them in the order that you spent that you set, but you didn't have to worry about how, who fit where and, and, and all of that stuff and where to cut it off. It's good stuff. I got more. Okay. I got not one, but two additional Go. items. Yeah. So one I found is a program called surprise DVD spanner. Here's the good news. So I found something called DVD spanner that will do exactly this. It will split up uh, 
it will split up the media into four dot something gigabyte chunks and it'll spread it across DVDs. Awesome. That's the good news. Yeah. Uh, we'll link to this, of course. Uh, the bad news is uh, it doesn't work on Lion. Oh. So, but then here's better news. So that's one program that I found, but then I found another one and I'm so excited about this one <laughs> because it's called Disco. Disco. I like that name. That's good. And the, uh, yeah, the, the www.discoapp.com and it even has a picture of a little disco ball. I mean, it couldn't get more exciting. And it looks to do a lot of things here, and it, it seems to be free. You have to punch in a license code, but uh, it seems to be free. And one of the features it mentions here is, yes, spanning. So I'm, uh, I'm surprised. And apparently, yeah, both of these options are, uh, are free, though I'm sure uh, with either of them, I'm sure they would uh, encourage or enjoy a uh, donation. Yeah, this is a, Disco looks good. Well, at least their, disco web, ball. Their, their website looks good. Yeah, and they've got a nice icon, so that's nice. That's good. <laughs> Austin Sarner is one of the authors of this. Why do we know Austin Sarner? That name sounds familiar. He, oh, he's App Zapper. Wow, you're good. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, that other name looks familiar too. Okay, so these these are, uh, I guess, uh, well known. Yeah, Mac app developers. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah, no kidding. That's awesome. Uh, all right. I want to talk about our first sponsor for the show, which is gazelle at gazelle.com. This is a fun website. Just go there. And if you have any electronics that are just laying around, maybe an old iPod, maybe an old iPhone, uh, maybe soon Apple will announce the iPad three and you'll want to unload your iPad two. Uh, you can go to gazelle and get a price, uh, for what your device is. You just type in the device. It asks you some questions to qualify it. You know, if you type in iPad, it's going to say, well, how much storage does it have? And then what condition is it in? And do you have the original cables that you want to send in with it? And then they'll give you a price. And once uh, it, they show you the price, you can, if you say, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, you can actually have them. They'll send you a box most of the time. And, uh, and you get a box all at their expense. You pack your thing into it. You send it off. They evaluate it when they get it to make sure that it matches. If it's better than what you said, they actually will give you more. Uh, if it's worse than what you said, they will offer to give you less. If their amount is different, regardless uh, whether it's more or less, they will ask you if you want to go ahead with things or if you just want them to ship the thing back to you. And and uh, and it goes it goes from there. Uh, in fact, uh, David wrote last month, listener David wrote, I just upgraded my wife's as well as myself to iPhone 4S's from the 3GS model. Once we passed one, we passed on to our youngest daughter and the other we sent off to Gazelle. They gave us a price online of 120 bucks for the phone. But once they received it, they upped the payoff to 132 because the because of the condition it was in. Nice little gift. And uh, and he says he was going to go spend that at Macworld. So uh, so that they really it, they, they do a good job over there at, at Gazelle. I've sent some stuff to them. Uh, one little trick is I think they let you hold your quote for 30 days. So uh, so you may get a higher quote on something if you were to uh, if you were to get it before the announcement of the, its of its uh, replacement. So, you know, that bear that in mind and, and maybe you can play around with Gazelle a little bit and see if you can't get it to uh, work to your advantage before Apple announces anything. When all well, the rumors say they are, uh, things are coming up early in March, I think is what the rumors say. So anyway, uh, that is Gazelle at Gazelle.com.
Mr. Braun? Yes, Mr. Hamilton. <laughs> oh, we're going on to Tim. Mm-hmm. I can tell because that's that's in the uh, in the in the in the agenda, agenda there. All right, but I'm not going to tell you about the agenda because you can't see it, nor do you want to see it. It's no, you're really cryptic don't. with all these codes and. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go, dear John. So Tim writes, dear John and Dave, I'm new to the Apple world. Welcome, but love the. And I think I, he says, but love the iOS devices, but I think and love the iOS devices. I started with the iPhone 4 and now have the 4S and an iPad 2. I use my iOS devices for everything and have almost completely stopped using my PC. No iMac yet. Love the podcast. I've learned a lot in a short time. However, I still use my PC for creating and updating my website. It is just a basic website for my hobby. I create it using an old front page 2000 and upload it to a tiger direct domain. Hmm. My question, is there an app or way to create and maintain a basic website on the iPad and or iPhone? I'm willing to start from scratch if necessary and also change domain hosting, whatever it takes. I just want to be able to make corrections and updates via iPhone and iPad. Also, I use the what you see is what you get on front page. I understand basic HTML code, but don't create that way. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Uh, sent from Tim's iPhone. So, uh, At naturally, I mean, if he wants to do everything on his iOS device, we would expect that the email would have come from an iOS device. And it did. So That's a good thing. <laughs> I've seen more humorous <laughs> uh, taglines there. Uh, what does our friend Duffy had sent from the microscopic keyboard on my iPhone? I think he had at one point, which I thought was pretty hilarious. It's kind of a challenge to type in that thing sometimes. So uh, I looked into this, Dave, and I found that there are a number of tools here. And I haven't actually tried them, but uh, looked at the apps. Well, I tried one of them. So I'm going to mention three different things here. So, oh gosh, and let me navigate to it. Oh no. Uh, let me get the right file. Okay, here we go. So, one, I did find what appears to be a pretty nice HTML editor for iPad, and it's called, and it, it looks to be only for iPad, not for iPhone. Okay. Uh, if you're going to be doing this sort of work, I, I think the iPhone could be a challenge. Uh, but it's called Markup for iPad, and it's $9.99, and we, we will link to that. And looking at the screenshots, um, he says, well, yeah, it's an app that lets you connect to your website and edit the, the text files within. Uh, so one requirement is that you need FT, uh, an FTP connection, which... I would assume you have if you're, you know, hosting it with someone. Uh, and I think they added SFTP, which is kind of nice. But looking at the screenshots, it, it looks like it's more than just editing the text in that it looks to be somewhat graphical. So cool. uh, in some cases, it looks like raw text editing. In other cases, it looks like it gives you a preview, uh, you know, some sort of graphical preview. Yeah. So, you know, for 10 bucks, it sounds like a, a good deal. Now, uh, another option, which should work on both the iPad and the iPhone or any iDevice, uh, if you want to get a little down and dirty, and it sounds like he'd be willing to do that. So even though he's using front page, of course, what it creates, uh, I think for the most part, is regular HTML. And I found a, uh, an app called FTP on the go by Headlight Software, $6.99. So it's an FTP client. Uh, and again, if you look at the screenshots here, which, you know, nice work. Uh, they'll show, oh, well, one of the one of the things that you can do with this is edit HTML files. And they mention this uh, and other users over it say that they, they do that as well. So option number two. And then option number three. And now this one, I actually uh, created a little website here. I, I'd never heard of this before. So th- this is part of the fun when we research uh, the request here is we all learn something. And, and it's a little app here called Zapped. Zapped? Z-A-P-D. I guess it's zapped, right? 
Sure. Let's so go here's with what that. it is. So here's what it is. It's an application. It, it runs on, uh, and I, I downloaded it onto my iPhone. So you start it up. You got to create an account with them. And then you literally, well, no, I won't say literally. Well, I already did. Sorry. But you can create a fully functional website just using this program. So there are some limitations in order to allow you, allow you to do this. So one, you got to pick for, from what I can see from the templates that they offer. And I just did a very simple template that would let you display a photograph. So I said, okay, you know, choose this one template. Uh, it then said, oh, okay, well, tell me a photograph you want to show. And I picked one of the photographs that was on my iDevice and, and then uh, uh, filled in a profile that had some information about me, like my Facebook, my Twitter, some things like that, added some text to the page. But I was amazed that I could do this, you know, on an iPhone. There's not a lot of screen real estate. And then you, you can even get a custom URL from them. So within like less than five minutes, I was able to create a website on their domain. Let me see if I, gosh, do I have it? Oh, I have, I have it. The, it's it's johnfbron.zapt.net. Z-A-P-D.net. Yep. Dot net. And this is something that I created in minutes and, and it looks pretty nice. Yeah. And, and well, I thought was cool is that, so, and I paid nothing and I have now, you know, fortunately I'm the first John F. Ron to come along, but now I have this, uh, this URL. That's awesome. And if I add more things to it. So, uh, gosh, that looks neat. And I, I don't know. It sounds like, well, I don't know. And, and, you know, a fourth option when I was, and we'll have to look more into this, Dave. Um, but I did see WordPress. I was just going to mention I, that. Yep. I've used WordPress it. WordPress from what I said. Oh, okay. So you, you've used WordPress on your iPad, I would assume. Yeah. Your, you, you have to set up the site first, but I think you could set up like a, a site at, at, you know, WordPress hosted kind of thing. Uh, but, but yeah, once you've got it set up, then the app, the app actually works and, and you can pump things into it uh, right from the app and manage your posts that are up there. It, you know, it's, it's very specifically for a blog type website, right? I mean, that's what WordPress allows you to create. So don't expect to be building pages that are laid out in custom ways that's not what you're doing with WordPress. But if, if that's what you want to do, then, then WordPress is the answer. Yeah, I would think so. And you know, I got one more answer for Go. you. Uh, Tumblr. And you've probably, uh, yeah. I think everybody, but, but if you're not aware of it, and you know, I, I've seen some people, uh, I, yeah, I don't know if, uh, so Tumblr is T-U-M-B-L-R is yet another system. I, I think I would say it's similar to WordPress, but it's a system where you can, publish information on a web page and yeah. you can do text and photos and links and and uh you know i've seen a wide variety of people use some people use tumblr just to to publish photos some use it as as a blog some combine it so and that's another one where i just looked and yeah it's in the uh you know it's, it's a free app in the uh in the store so that may be uh, another one you want to explore because I don't know if you uh, uh, doing the front page thing and then editing it on the iDevice, I think is something that you probably won't want to tolerate for too much longer. Well, just because front page 2000, I mean, gosh, that's ancient. So. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you got it right. You got to get something better. That's right. Well, there you go. We just gave him a bunch of options. Which is good. All right. Uh, Let's see. Let's go to, uh, how are we doing on time here? Actually, we've got quite a bit of, well, not quite a bit, but some cool stuff found. We've got a couple more questions. All right, let's do, uh, let's do Jordan and, uh, and we'll see where we take it from there. Jordan 
writes, and this is actually this is actually a question we've been asked by several people in in variety of ways. So we'll try and abstract this out as we do, so that it uh, it it's applicable to as many of you as possible. But uh, but Michael also called him not Michael Johnston. Of course, now is as good a time as any to stop for a minute and thank Michael Johnston for uh, he's the one that converts this show into AAC for you and uh, adds all the chapters and the images. And some, sometimes there's funny images. And, uh, and so this creates a nice opportunity for Michael to put one right here, but, uh, but he's uh, he's very creative about it, but also very helpful because it uh, allows for you to click and link and, and all of that right while you're listening to the show. But anyway, uh, so thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. But anyway, uh, uh, this question has nothing to do with Michael. Jordan writes, I have a pretty abysmal ISP choice where I live in that I have no fiber, no cable and no DSL. I am forced to use some sort of wireless. For two years, I've been using a local company that uses a Motorola Canopy wireless technology, and the service has been pretty bad, but it interacted with my Airport Extreme fourth generation like I expected. Assigned a public IP to my router, and that's it. I'm now trying out Clearwire's WiMAX, and thus far I'm pretty pleased with the speed and consistency. My issue, my issue is that, and this again, this issue could be for anyone that has uh, an wired or wireless uh, internet service where the um, ISP provides the router to you. So moving on, he says, my issue is that the supplied Motorola modem wants to be my router too. It has a DHCP server and NAT routing that conflicts with the airport extreme. When I initially set it up, it, the airport utility gave me a double NAT error indicating I needed to either turn off NAT on the modem or switch the airport extreme to bridge mode. Uh, long story short, you can't disable NAT on the modem from my from my Clearwire company, but I can disable DHCP. So now here's how I have my network set up. The Motorola modem is running NAT and has a 10.0.1.2 uh, DMZ address with no firewall on the LAN address of the modem is set at 10.0.1.1. The airport base station is set to get all the traffic from the modem using the DMZ protocol and is only set to run a DHCP DHCP server by selecting distribute a range of IP addresses with the basic base range being set at 10.0.1.3 to exclude the modem in the base station. Okay. Uh, so he says, I have two questions. I have an iMac and Apple TV wired directly to the airport extreme base station that are working great. But another Apple TV, Xbox 360 and network TV tuner are behind a standard Ethernet switch. These devices are not receiving IP addresses from the airport and don't work if I set them up with static IP addresses either. Number two, is there any advantage to using the airport extreme to run DHCP? Uh Psychologically, I think is what he meant to write here. I don't believe physiologically is the right thing. But uh, anyway, he says, physiologically, I feel that I am letting the better, in my opinion, hardware do as much as possible and will give the best network performance as possible. Am I crazy? Am I overcomplicating this setup? Should I just let the modem run DHCP and NAT and let my base station run in bridge mode? Uh, my very, very short answer to what I'm sure will be a slightly longer discussion. Yes. Let the let whatever the first router is on your network, unless you have some very specific reason not to do this, let one router or one device be the router and the DHCP server and just let it do its thing and let your airport extreme just work in bridge mode. And I really think life is going to be easier for you. Uh, my that that would be that that's my feeling on it, because otherwise you just it's too much confusion. I used to have, uh, you know, I'd have my router 
uh, just passing traffic through. And then I had a Linux machine that was doing DHCP and DNS. And it was, it felt great to configure all this stuff because it was a lot of fun, but it was just a management nightmare. And life's been so much simpler. Uh, and it's, it's been like five years now since I gave up on that setup. But now that the router's just do- doing everything, I'm way happier. So I don't know. I don't know about your thoughts on this, John. That, which is, of course, why we're here. Uh, no, you don't know them. No. I'm still trying to picture this. I, it'd be nice if I had a die because it seems we got a number of number of pieces here. Let, let me see if I, I can explain. I, it I just to wonder you. if he's. I mean, so he mentions that he has. All right, so he's got this Motorola thing. He's got an Airport Express, and mm-hmm. he has also a, a Ethernet switch. Are those the three pieces? Where? Yeah. Okay, that's right. Do you want me to explain it, or are you good? There's a, there's a pregnant um, pause here, so that's why I'm that's why I'm asking. Yeah, I'm just thinking if anything's gonna will anything is there any downside to putting the Airport Express in bridge mode? No, uh, other than it is n- now no longer the thing managing DHCP on his network. But I I think that's the right move. Oh well, then yeah, as long as the yeah the one of the other devices is doing that, then then yeah, you're you're yeah. Good. Yeah, there's no, I mean, you know, as far as uh, better hardware and all of that, DHCP, and, D, and and for those of you following along at home, DHCP is is the way that the router assigns uh, addresses and passes uh, pertinent information about the network along to all of your devices. It's, it's essentially what lets you say, I want to connect to this Wi-Fi network on your iPhone, and the rest is just magically taken care of. That's what DHCP does, but that's not really a processor intensive operation um, in terms of what a router has to do. Frankly, the, the the more intensive operation, although this isn't all that bad either, is the actual routing where there's traffic passing up and down and back and forth. And it has to kind of figure out, OK, I'm going to send this here. I'm going to send this there. That's the more intensive thing. And in at least in, in Jordan's situation, you're you're stuck with your um WiMAX device doing that because that's what they've built it to do. So just let it do everything. It's not going to hurt it. And it's not going to make it any worse. It'll just make it easier to manage. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a reason it warns you about double net. I mean, I suppose you could set it up. I, I believe the, uh, the express will let you set up a different NAT range. Yeah. But you don't want that. Right, right. It's bad. Yeah, yeah, there's there's no reason to to do double NAT. No, it, it could only lead yeah. to problems. Yeah, you don't want two machines or two routers essentially routing with one routing for the other. That that's I mean it's it's different than than like going to a baseball game and one guy roots for the other team. That's not it's not the same as rooting and routing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one is good. One is bad. One router per network, unless you really have a reason to segregate things but most of us do not myself included uh all right let's um let's move to uh rob's second one down there john is there anything in the in the middle there you want to grab if there is say say so now or there's uh, uh well, let's look here because oh, i was getting ready for rob yeah. all right we'll do then do rob yeah go ahead yeah, do Rob. We'll do two Robs in a row. You do the first one. Okay. All right. So from Rob, 
Hi, John and Dave. Everybody says John first. That that just warms my heart. I just noticed that. All right, here we go. On my Mac Mini running Lion, um, it runs a program that needs a permanent connection to a couple of AFP shares on two storage servers. The servers are kind of RAID servers called Unraid from uh, Lime Technology and are capable of sharing using, using SMB and AFP. The shares are being mounted using a scripted login. The script prevents mounting when the server is not seen on the network and is also used on two MacBook Pros. I think that's what he's saying there. What I'm looking for is a way to automatically mount the shares when the connection to the server or servers have been restored. Um, in other words, after a reboot of the servers without restarting the Mac Mini or re-log into the Mini. Searching the internet only gives solutions for auto-connect on login. I hope you guys have a solution for me because I think I really need a geek solution. Oh, well, that's... <laughs> oh, that warmed my heart. That's nice. Well, we're not going to have a geek solution. We're going to have a solution that makes sense, right? Yeah, but I well, think it's, it's going to be geeky. <laughs> well, it could be geeky. All right, it, 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 it's geeky in the sense that, yeah, you're, you're going to have to uh, put some pieces together here. But I think I found the right pieces. And so I wrote back to him and I suggested um, what follows. So one, I found a very nice uh, article over it. Macworld uh, that has uh, not one, not two, but and it's called 10 different ways to connect to servers. And specifically, so I thought this would just be fun to look at in general, has a lot of good tips here. But one way you can connect to a server is, uh, and it has uh, their choice, they call it the scripters way, and it's using an Apple script. So that's certainly a way to connect to a server. So that's item number one. Now, item number two, how do you get... Now, of course, you can manually double-click on an Apple script, but it sounds to me like that's not what he wants to do. So I think we've, we've touched on a solution like this in, in the past before. So, so the question that presents itself is, well, how do you get the Mac to try to do this on a regular basis? Which I think is, at least to me, that's one way to solve this problem. Now, you could say, yeah, it's wasteful. I mean, you're trying to connect to something and you know you're, you keep trying to do the same thing you know, every minute or every 10 minutes or however often you want to schedule it. And isn't that kind of wasteful? And I guess it is, but I don't know of any other way to, to, to accomplish this. Uh, and my suggestion was there, there is something I haven't used it in a while. I think you've used it more recently than me, Dave called chronics. Mm -hmm. And that runs what's known as a cron job, which is uh, in, in Unix, basically a process that you can say, keep doing this at regular intervals. That's my solution would be to get Chronix to run this Apple script. I have another one. Go because it, it, yeah, I don't know that this seemed uh, somewhat primitive. I think it'll get the job done, but you may have a better way. I definitely have a better way. Uh, I'm just, well, no, I'm, I'm just stumbling onto it now. Uh, I did not know uh, about this until we started researching this. Um, so leopard introduces something called auto FS and, the I, and so this has been in existence in 10.5 10 uh, auto FS is essentially a way to tell the OS. I want this file system to mount, to be mounted all the time. And uh, yeah. And there's a, there's a white paper on it that Apple put together and, and it's, um, it's a Unix thing. So you have to, you have to create kind of how well, it's called an FS tab. And honestly, I don't know what I always forget what FS tab stands for, but it, you have to create a description of what you want the drive to look like. We'll link to this PDF. Uh, I was kind of hoping that someone had built a GUI 
uh, for this, you know, where you could just go in and say, I want to do this. And then it would just build all these text files for you. Uh, but, uh, but I can't seem to find anything like that. Uh, but I, we will link to this. And so, yeah, it's this thing and you, you edit this file and you build, you tell it, I want this file system to be mounted here. And magically it just takes care of it. And it looks like from what I can tell here, you just, you know, once you've gone through the configuration, it doesn't look that bad, but it's not totally easy either. Um, and I think, I think you can, you know, there, I think there's actually something in server admin. So if you had line server that you could do this there, so Apple has built a GUI utility for it, but it, it's only included in server. Although I believe it is the, the capability to do this is in everything. Uh, so there you go. A third option. Yep. Like, I, cause it sounds to me like this happens. I don't know if uh, iCal, you can schedule an event or occur at regular intervals. The problem with iCal is that as far as I can tell, the level of granularity, you can only get it down to, uh, I think it's like once a day. Okay. So if you do an iCal event, there's a repeat field and you can say every day, every day, week, month, year or custom, but I can't figure a way to get custom lower than a day. And then in the alert section, an iCal event, you can say, oh, well, you know, send a message, do an email, open a file, or run a script. So if you only need to do this once a day, you could set up an iCal, iCal event to, to launch this Apple script once a day. Yeah. So it yeah. sounds like, yeah, it sounds like what, what you're proposing is, uh, what, is what more I'm, elegant. What I'm proposing is more elegant, but what, but, but not in terms of configuration. Uh, it's, you know, it's using an OS service. So it's, yeah, like you said, it's more elegant, but what you're talking about is probably more attainable and more, more manageable. So uh, I would, I would do the chronics way of just scripting the Apple script. Cause that's kind of what auto FS does based on, based on my very brief uh, investigation of it here. Uh, is it, it, it kind of on a regular basis or anytime it detects network changes, you know, that's the beauty of, of using launch D is, is you can set different, um, events to be the trigger as opposed to with chronics you're just setting the time although will chronics let you um manipulate launch d now i think it will so um but maybe no maybe, i think it's just cron tab that's right so yeah you're just doing time so you know you might be able to build a um uh what are, the, what are those called the uh, a, a launch agent right and put that in uh and build and build that and then install it with lingon it would be another oh, way of doing it all right you know what i mean well, that's another one. Yeah, another because way. laying on when you define. Okay, good one. Yeah, so that the yeah that lets you define tasks that'll. Yeah, though I'm wondering because that's more. Hmm. I'm wondering about that. No, I I think it'll let you do it because I mean definitely we know this especially from people where software has uh not you know, fully uh removed itself. What happens is that if in, if a launch D job if you set it up to launch it when it dies then uh, you'll get all this garbage in the console. So right. I'm wondering if doing it that way, if it's smart enough to know that a connection has been lost or you just, yeah, like uh, similar to Chronix, you just set it up. So it, it always, it tries to do this on a regular basis. Right. I and mean, if it's mounted, then it, and you try to mount it again, it shouldn't do any harm. Yep. It's just kind of wasteful. Yep. Right. Right. Cool. Yeah. Auto FS. We'll put, a, we'll put a link out there, John. I'll send you the, uh, the PDF I found if you haven't, uh, 
if you haven't found it already for yourself. But uh, no, I haven't found it. All right, it's a it's just a PDF. So, all right, uh, let's see. Uh, let's move on to another question from another Rob. Oh no, I got to pull this up. Okay, uh, Rob writes. And this is a question I kind of want to pass along to the group here because I don't have a magic answer for it. But I think amongst our family, the Mac Geek extended family, that uh, that somebody's going to have this. Uh, he says, I haven't been able to find an app for this. So I'm wondering if you know of something that will do the following. Like in the TV series 24, I want to be able to send data from my iPad or iPhone to a Mac screen and vice versa. For example, if I'm looking at a web page and want to share it with my wife, I can send her the link to her iMac and she can open it in her browser. Ditto for text or PDFs, etc. Any ideas on an app that can do this? So I think we've got to sort of uh, abstract back from the concept of doing this as an app, but more into the concept of doing it as a workflow. And and the reason is um, there are, well, I was good. what I was going to say is there's no real way of having something running on your iPad that will, or iPhone, uh, that will collect data from every app, right? Each app is sort of autonomous that way. But you could set something up in a in a print way that that allowed things to move back and forth. So I I don't I don't know the magic answer, but I know that there are people out there that do this and they constantly move things between their two devices. So uh, send in your your ideas. And uh, and then we'll share the, uh, the the more creative ones here in a in a future show. Do you have Do you have any thoughts on this? Otherwise, we got to tell them how to share their ideas with us, John. No, 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 uh, no thoughts. Okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Well, if you so for for all of you out there, you're going to want to email feedback at macgeekab.com with your ideas. I want to make sure I heard you right, Dave. I do believe that you said feedback. At MacGeekab.com. I did. I said feedback at MacGeekab.com. You can send in email, pictures, videos, text, uh, obviously, and uh, and you can even attach an audio file. Uh, so that's that's one way of getting to us. The other is uh, to call us at 206-666-GEEK, which is 4335. Oh, look at that. Uh, you can visit uh, MacGeekGab.com to see the show notes, of course, for the show. Uh, and you can leave comments on individual shows there. And that has been a great place of uh, of some discussions in the past, and especially following up after a show. So that would work for uh, for this, too. You can Skype us to MacGeekGab. That works. Anything else? Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab. And unfortunately, you can only like us, I think. They can't love us there. Or tolerate us. <laughs> they only have, it's just, you know, it's kind of, still kind of wishy-washy. Actually, you know, I've had a lot of people, not that anyone would do this, but I have had a lot of people actually uh, suggest that uh, Facebook should have an unlike option. Ah, like not a, not a, well, there, there is an unlike option, right? <laughs> if you just like them. If you like a page, you can then unlike it and go back to neutral ground. But I think what you're talking about is something where you can actually go one step below neutral ground. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and lastly, uh, iTunes comments. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah. You can give us stars and, and you can do uh, you can do text. And that's about it there. You can find us on Twitter. Twitter.com slash MacGeekGab for announcements regarding the show. Twitter.com slash John F. Braun for that guy over there. Twitter.com slash Dave Hamilton for me. And Twitter.com slash Pilot Pete for Pilot Pete. But he's not here today. All right. Uh, so that's send to screen. I, yeah, I'm curious about people's workflows. I bet we're going to learn a lot uh, as people write in about that, you know, cause th- th- he's got a good point. You know, you're, it, it, it's a frustrating thing to be viewing a web page on your Mac and say, okay, now I want to read this on the iPad or especially vice versa. Email works, but it's so clumsy to, uh, to do that with. So I'm looking for creative elegance here. That's what we're, uh, that's what we're after. Uh, okay. Um, I, I I don't know about this one. This next one, well, let's skip that. I'm going to skip that for a week. Uh, Simon had an interesting thing. I get. Simon. I don't know about Simon. Well, you go go. Okay, actually, sorry, I have the I have the name wrong. Uh, we'll go. With, we'll, we'll leave it. Oh as no Simon. no! Oh, that's no, right. No no, oh, no, no, no. We'll leave it as Simon. Trust me on this for this one. Uh, so uh, Simon writes uh, in show 379, John advised Brian to install two two gig chips in his Cord 2 Duo MacBook. John recommended two two gig chips rather than one two gig chip and another one gig chip in order to gain the benefits of interleaving and 128 bit addressing and all of that stuff. Either way, John said Brian's MacBook would be able to access a maximum of three gigabytes of the installed RAM. And as uh, Simon writes here, the best reason to install two two gigabyte chips in this machine is because it is, in fact, capable of accessing all four of those gigabytes once the machine is upgraded to Lion. And Brian did say that he was running Lion. I have a slightly older, slightly slower MacBook, a late 2006 two gigahertz core two duo with two two gigabyte chips, a cover a couple of years old. And I did this because of the interleaving benefit, but only had three gigs available. Then I upgraded to Lion. Lo and behold, my old MacBook could see all four gigabytes, and I've even included a screenshot to prove the point. And sure enough, he did. So this is interesting. I, I, it didn't make sense to me that Lion lifted this restriction, but uh, I, I take his screenshot at face value because why wouldn't I? Uh, but uh, this is an interesting one. I think, John, you said you were going to reach out to OWC and see if we can't get him to... You know, here's the comments. On ooh, whoa. Hello. Voice is cracking. Here's the thing, though. So the screenshot that we were sent was about this Mac. Uh-huh. Now, what I asked um, Simon, we're going to say, uh, to do for us, though, is I'm not convinced that that value represents the amount of usable memory. Ah, because I did some reading on this, and the information that's out there, including the information from multiple vendors, is that the particular class of machine that we identified is, in fact, although you can put four gigs in, uh, can only use three. So as a follow-up, what I asked, and what I think this will clinch it here, is... Uh, so we definitely see in about this Mac that it says four gigs. There, there's no question about that. What I'd like to know is that if... if um, and I think Simon will get back to us on this. If you go to um, Activity Monitor, there's a System Memory tab. And that shows you a, a slightly different view. And I'm curious if that also says 4 gigs or if it says 3 gigs. And there's yeah. one or two places you can look. So one, 
Well, there's two. So either you're going to see that there's two figures here that should add up to the total memory in the machine and it's used and free. Right. 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 And then there's the graph to the right. There's a little pie chart. And oddly enough, now this is, is oh, I know why. <laughs> Check this out. You know, I just looked at mine uh-huh. on my Mac mini. Uh-huh. It says 7.75. Because your Mac mini, you use in a quarter of a gig for a video RAM. Right. You know, I was just looking. I'm, wait a second. I don't have 7.75 gigs of memory in there. I got eight. And you're absolutely right, Dave. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't seen that. Oh, before. yeah. Yeah. The number on my, on my the MacBook pie. Pro, it shows me six because that machine has six and it has its own VRAM. So that's very interesting that that pie chart reflects the uh, the, the 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 or subtracts the uh, the VRAM. So right. so your theory here, and you may be right about this, is that, and I just want to get this right, that Lion is more intelligent uh, more intelligent about reporting what chips are installed in about this Mac, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's allowing you to address all four gigs uh, as usable RAM. Correct. And that's uh, yeah, where I think, you could be that's right. where I think the end of it, the, cause I, 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 I mean, I did a bit of surfing and I didn't find anybody saying lion all of a sudden gave me the ability to, to utilize more RAM because my understanding is that this limitation is not a limitation of the operating system, but it's a limitation I think of the firmware or maybe the particular um, processor, class yeah, of Intel I, processor. I think it, I, for some reason I thought it was the, the memory bridge like the, the, yeah, but whatever. Yes. There's something on the motherboard that says no go. That was my interpretation too. Yeah. So if anybody else out there has, so, so the specific Mac that we're talking about, if anyone has a Mac book out there, and your machine is one that identifies itself. So if you go to a system profile or more info, and when you look under hardware and then model identifier, it should say, I think it's Mac or MacBook two comma one. I think it is. This is the specific class of machine that as far as I can tell, can only utilize three gigs of Ram. Right. So if anybody else has this, this uh, class of machine and they're running lion, if you could give us the numbers, I, I'd like to settle yeah, this because Either, either, because uh, two sources of info told me that this machine can only see three, both uh, Mac sales and I trust these guys, you know, have pretty good info. And, yeah. Uh, and and Mac uh, Mac Tracker also that software also says well this machine only sees three. Yeah. Interesting, but you do get a uh, at least in theory you get a speed benefit by putting two. two oh, there's a, chips a, in, there's no yeah. there's no downside except a slight financial one to having. Right. Two twos versus a two and a one. Yeah, you definitely want to do it. Now, I think there there was an exception that I think in some of the MacBook Pros, like I think our model actually, Dave, I think ours does not like having two fours in it, right? Uh, I know there was one iteration where you had to put a two and a four in it. Yeah, right. we have the uh, MacBook Pro early 2008 and i think this machine i'll, I'll let you, you to keep put saying we, in, but but we really don't oh you don't have we, it anymore you, no. you oh you uh you sold it or, or no well away? i do i have it my i'm trying to think who's using it i guess my daughter's using that now that i've got my air yeah that's i still have it but because i thought i heard that putting two fours in that machine would would confuse it i think that's right yeah hmm. yeah All um right. you know at Macworld Expo, one of the things that we talked about and we even gave an editor's choice award to was this cool thing from Lantronics called the X print server. And I got one, I guess I, it arrived uh, Tuesday. So 
I, I've been able to play with it a little bit and, and the device, it works. It does exactly what uh, it's supposed to do. You plug it into your network. You just, it, it has two ports on it, power and ethernet. That's it. So you just plug it into your network. It went out, it found my networked HP LaserJet 3055. And now from here in my, you know, iPad or whatever, I can uh, go and say print and, uh, and it just shows up and it's an option to print and I can select the printer. I'm doing this here and it just shows up HP LaserJet 3055 X print server and off you go. And it just prints it. And I've printed a bunch of things with it. It's worked really, really well. Huh. Uh, the it, there is a web page. It like it registers itself on you know on your network with as Bonjour, and so you can go to I think it's you know Xprint Server or something dot local, and uh, and and you can configure it. You know, uh, but you don't need to. It, there's nothing really special to uh, to configure. You you know. I mean, you can change its name and you can change the name of your printers and all of that. But for the most part, you just leave the thing alone and it just works right out of the box. So really, really cool. And I think it's like 150 bucks. So it's uh, it's good stuff. The the one thing I will point out about it, and this is it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's too bad when people do this to a product. So I get the thing and it has its its power adapter. So it's got in the boxes is the, the device, which is. Not that big, maybe, you know, about the size of an iPhone, but like uh, two or three of them stacked on top of each other. But, but it's, you know, relatively small. And then there's an Ethernet cable, which is great. Uh, and then there's this power cable. And then there's some adapters to make the power cable work in Europe or elsewhere. Hmm. Great. So I left the adapters alone. Uh, I plugged everything in and then I went to apply power and it was one of these power bricks, which has the, 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 the prongs that kind of flip out of it uh, and, and usually fit real well at the end of a surge protector strip. Right. You know, right. Okay. So you know what I'm talking about? So uh, I go to plug it in and there's, you know, one wide open hole at the end of the strip and I'm like trying to get it and the thing keeps folding back into itself. I'm like, what is going on? And then I realized that it is not a standard one of these but the prongs actually go to the middle of this device, not to the top of it like you would normally expect. And I think it's because of all these other adapters for different countries or whatever. And they built this thing. But the problem is it takes up two or three. Actually, it would take up three. If you put it in the middle of a power strip, it would take up three uh, spots just for itself. So it's like, you know, you built this great device and then you outsource to this crummy uh, you know, I'm sure they didn't build this power cable. I'm sure they just, you know, said, oh, great. We can, you know, source a bunch of these cables that work in any country. Beautiful. Check, you know, works anywhere. But uh, but it, it's just like, you know, you could go a little bit further and make sure the thing works. So that's my one little little fish shake at it because um, I had to I had to go get an extension cord to make this thing work. But otherwise, it works great. Huh. And the way it works, if I recall, is so you have to connect to it using Wi-Fi with your iDevice. No. Correct? Not at all. It it just sits. It, in fact, really? it is not a it is not a Wi-Fi device. Uh, it is a network device, and all it does is it goes on the network and finds printers, and then it advertises those printers as iOS printers oh, all right, on right. the same network. So wired okay. machine. When I was yeah. when I got a demo of it, I was connected. Okay, I, I when they demoed it to me, their only network was the device. 
No. Or they, they or I'm they, sorry, they had a Wi-Fi access point and they had this on their own network. Okay. That's right. No, I, I got it. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you, right. You do have to connect wirelessly, but that's a limitation of your iOS device. Right, right, right. right. You know, because there's okay, no. Okay, no, now, now I understand. I, I thought it was connecting to their, their, though I thought their device could connect to other Wi-Fi enabled printers. It, sure. If a printer is, it, it will connect to any network printer that is set up on your network. And Whether so it be doesn't wired or wireless. Correct. And yeah. then if you're on the same network, then all of a sudden you, you can see these on, yeah. on your iDevice. Okay. That's okay. right. Uh, all right. Thank, thank you for clarifying. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. It's cool. Amazing. I, you know. It, well, you know, it's funny that, you know, such kind of, to me, such a glaring omission in the iOS environment it, it, that it took a company to step in and, yeah, right. You know, figure this problem out, which to me, I don't think is, is a big technical problem. Just for whatever reason, Apple just doesn't isn't really interested in letting you print. <laughs> I, I guess. Yeah. And <laughs> or you make know, it easy to print. The, the, so the thing is, I have now printed twice from this thing. Total one the day I got it to test it. And then two right now, because I figured I would go through the steps while I while we were talking about it. So there's not a lot of times that I would want to print in my home to my uh, to my iOS, you know, from my iPad or whatever. But there, to be fair, there's also not a lot of homes that have network printers in them. I think you and I are, you know, we're, we're geeks. Right. But but most people have printers that are just attached to their Macs. And this will not work with those types of printers. You have to have a, a standalone network printer. It can be on a jet direct box or something like that, but it has to be set up as a standalone network printer. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. But, Oh, well, all my printers are network printers. I know, but you and I, like I said, you and I are geeks. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, I was at my, uh, my son's school, uh, the other day for a carnival and I saw a printer. It was a winter carnival. So it was inside. Uh, and I saw it, you know, they're, they've got printers kind of spaced in common areas throughout the school. And that's when it hit me. It was like, oh, wow. Well, if this school had a bunch of iPads and the kids were working on stuff and they wanted to print something, this device would be awesome because you just get one of these devices. They say that one device will do about 10 printers. Uh, and if you need more, more printers, you just add more of these devices and they'll magically sort it out. So uh, but, you know, one school, they probably don't have more than 10 or maybe 20 printers total. And so, you know, you stack up a couple of these devices and now every printer everywhere in the school is accessible for the iPads. And that is when it starts getting really cool. So, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, cool stuff found. And uh, just, you know, you got to get an extension cord with it. It's too bad. Uh, all right. Uh, you want to read uh, about these uh, iOS tips, John? Ah, I'm unprepared. All right. You want me to do it? You want me to do another one while you prepare for that one? You want to let Joe go? Let's let Joe go. And then, and then you'll let Joe go. All right, cool. Hey guys, Joe here from Raleigh, North Carolina. We're just listening to uh, Pre 76 where you were talking about, uh, trip it. I agree. That's a great, uh, great resource. It's, uh, and I haven't listened all the way through. So you may mention this, but there are a number of other applications or iApps, including one from TripIt Sales, that integrate that with an app on your phone for tracking stuff. And they're all really cool for keeping up with your actual travel plans. What I have found, though, is that there's an application called Travel Tracker Club Pro, sorry, 
uh, that's Travel Tracker Pro, and for a a reasonably frequent traveler, this is an absolute awesome app. It's not particularly cheap. I seem to remember that it's in the neighborhood of fifteen to twenty dollars, uh, but it links with TripIt, allows you to make changes, upload them back up to the website so that you know they're there. But it goes far, far beyond that. It can. Uh, create packing lists for you if you need such things to help you remember things to pack. Uh, it can uh, keep up with expenses in any currency. Uh, it can take photographs of receipts and link them with the expense that you're talking about if you happen to need that sort of thing for submitting to work. It just has a number of features. It keeps up with past history, uh, uh, future trips, and it is just a great, great little resource uh, for carrying all that information along with you and not having to carry paper. So anyway, I just wanted to drop that off, put that maybe in your next uh, tips show. I hope you guys are having a great week, and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Thanks, Joe. Uh, I found it for ten bucks, nine ninety nine. So, uh, so not quite as much as Joe said, and he's right. It's got some good stuff in there. Uh, another one that I would throw into that mix is also ten bucks. Is uh, Flight Tracker Pro really awesome for keeping track of where flights are, finding alternate flights? The the user interface of it makes it worth it alone, and it will dr- pull from TripIt, so you can have all your stuff in one spot and and all of that. And all of these do not require TripIt Pro. You can do it with the free TripIt version. Uh, that you can get just by going to tripit.com. So, all right. Are we ready for, uh, for your iOS tips here, John? I think I have the right one. Okay. Oh no, but it says, hi, Dave. <laughs> That's it's okay. But I, I can read. all right. And this is time. Okay. So hi, Dave heard my question on the podcast like last week. Appreciate that. Thought I would pass this on. So I'm giving as well as taking no doubt. You already know these. I didn't, but there you go. All three are about the iPhone. In my case, the 4S and all three come under the heading of, wow, I never knew that, but I bet everyone else does, which is annoying. Well, no, because I didn't know some of these. And actually, I just tried some of these, Dave. So here we go. Cool. First one, never knew you could take a photo using the plus volume key. Yeah. Yeah. That's I'll qualify that is that you have to be in the camera. Oh, good point. Yes, because I just tried it. No, just holding down the plus volume key will, of course, set the volume. So if you're in the camera, other than the, the, there are two ways to take a picture now. I just and I just verified this. So one, of course, is you can press the tiny little camera icon that's on the touch screen. But yep, that may be cumbersome or hard to do. Well, yeah, you press the uh, <laughs> press the plus volume key. That's very nice. Um, number two, and I don't think I knew either one of these. Never knew you could call someone back when you have missed the call without unlocking the phone by pressing and holding on the missed call notification, then sliding it to the right. So, yeah. So this is actually interesting. Any of those notifications that you get on the uh, lock screen where you have the slide to unlock at the bottom, all of those notifications actually are slideable to unlock the phone and bring you right into the app that generated it. So in this case, the phone app, and it'll go and redial the number. But if you've got, you know, uh, a thing from like, say, you know, a, a news item from the New York times, you can swipe that and it'll bring you into the app. If you have a notification from your Twitter app or Facebook app, you swipe that and it brings you right into the app. So yeah, you can unlock the phone from those things in that list, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and, and the final one, Oh, I'd like this. 
Never knew you could use a locked iPhone to make calls even when you don't know the PIN. Just press and hold the home key to invoke Siri and then speak the number. I wonder how much of a security hole that is and how far you can go using Siri with a locked phone. That's a very good question. Yeah, Siri. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, Siri allows you to bypass all that stuff on the, on the 4S only uh, for obvious reasons because it doesn't have the rest don't have Siri. Yeah, yeah, same with, uh, you know, taking photos, as we discussed, which I've actually found very handy. Yeah, although the thing is, taking photos is interesting because if you so this is another tip, right? If you double tap uh, from the lock screen with iOS five, the slide to unlock two things happen. Number one, music shuttle controls appear at the top below the time. And then number two, the unlock slider gets a little bit smaller and a camera icon appears there. And so this is a way that you can jump right into the camera and be ready to take a picture like lickety split. And you're right. This all happens without unlocking it. But what's interesting is that you can't access your other pictures until you unlock the phone. So you can take pictures, yep. uh, but you can't, uh, you can't access others and, and do anything with them until you unlock the phone. So. So. I noticed that because, yeah, I just tried it now and it says your iPhone is locked. Unlock the iPhone because I thought, oh, man, this is a huge, you know, so now I can see pictures on anybody's phone by just double tapping. No, you could you could certainly take pictures, right? And maybe clog up their uh, photo stream with, right. with uh, shenanigans. But right. Right. Yeah, it's good stuff. This is uh, this is why we do this, because it's fun. And uh, and when you're having fun, the time flies. Believe it or else. Wow, it did fly. Look at that. I know. All right. Uh, well, we've talked about how to contact us. We should talk about premium. We've got Mac Geek Gab Premium. Uh, it is our little something extra that we offer for the people that want the little something extra and or want to uh, offer some direct financial support for the show. Uh, it's 25 bucks, gets you six months of premium, which includes two extra episodes per month. Uh, and that's guaranteed two extra episodes. So if we wind up doing, you know, four regular ones in a month, you get six. If we wind up doing only two regular ones in a month, you get four. So it's, you know, always two extra. Uh, you get access to the archives. You get access to premium at MacGeekGab.com, which is the email address that premium members you can use to send email to John and I. And, uh, and of course, as we say many times, you get our... Undying gratitude and that warm, fuzzy feeling you get only from supporting your two favorite geeks. So, for those of you that are already on premium, thank you. And for those of you that are thinking about it, thank you. Think harder. Thank you. <laughs> you know, uh, a friend of ours who used to run a Mac podcast, but but actually now goes and work. He went and worked for Apple. Um, he used to run a hosting business. My friend Corey. And he, on his tech support page, he had something which always makes me laugh. It said something. I'll paraphrase this, and hopefully I'll get it right enough so that it's actually still funny. He said, uh, if you, you know, uh, all tech support calls, he said, you know, he gave, like, phone number and, and email. And uh, it was basically him that ran it. And his clients kind of knew this. And he said, it said, all tech support requests will be answered within two hours of them being sent in. If you've waited two hours and still haven't had a response, wait longer. <laughs> Thought that was funny. That's good. All right. Uh, I think that's it. We're ready to get out of here. 
We thanked Michael Johnston from We Have Communicators podcast. He uh, Go check out that podcast. It's good stuff that he does over there. Uh, we'd also like to thank Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for the bandwidth. And, of course, the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebones Software, PDF Pen for iPad from Smile and Gazelle are on the podcast marketplace this month. And, uh, John, is there any parting words you'd like to share with the listeners before we disappear for a week? Of course, don't get caught. Made up.